0: You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones, and I'm talking today to my colleague James Butler, a contributing editor at the LRB, who has a piece in the new issue responding to Boris Johnson's resignation as leader of the Conservative Party, though he'll continue as Prime Minister until September. An early version of the piece appeared on the LRB blog last Wednesday. Hello, James, and thank you for joining me.
1: Hi, it's a pleasure.
0: So not so long ago, Boris Johnson was talking about a third term, a decade in power, He'd survived scandal after scandal. It didn't matter that he'd said let the bodies pile high when hundreds of people a day were dying of COVID. It didn't matter that he was going to parties in Downing Street while most people weren't allowed to go to funerals. So, what changed in the last last few weeks? Well, I mean, this the 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 longer term
1: kind of question with this stuff is is things really changed with the Partygate reports? And I think it had become very clear to people within the Conservative Party um that this was starting to look like an electoral liability for them uh so when they held if you recall they held uh, an initial confidence vote within the party which Johnson won quite handsomely um just a few weeks ago and you know the unspoken consensus within the party at that time was you know now he has to turn it around he has to behave differently he has to uh, take seriously um, sorry i'm laughing because of course this was a completely ludicrous thing for anyone to believe would would happen um but I think what what has become clear in in the intervening period was very much that uh that there had been cut through from the the party gate stuff, and that it was very clear that johnson um was not going to change the way that he ran the number ten operation. And this obviously all came to a head with chris Pincher, um the deputy chief whip um and and really, i mean you know like like so many scandals. <laughs> like so many scandals within the Conservative Party it's not so much the initial act itself as the sort of uh, somewhere between the sort of attempt at a cover up and the sort of rather lazy and entitled failure to even be bothered to cover it up properly. And this is that Chris Pincher who had been Yes. So um let's step through the Chris Pincher thing clearly. Um so Johnson appoints him as deputy chief whip. People at that point make representations to number 10 about Pincher's background that he is handsy that he gets drunk and sort of uh, harasses and gropes men, sometimes young, sometimes not so young. Um, And that this has also been an issue in a previous post, right, there has been an official complaint, Um, it has been resolved, um, you know, in that uh, it it has been upheld. So this is made clear to him. Um, He then appoints him as Deputy Chief Whip anyway. And then uh, this all sort of comes out. And then basically number 10 sends a number of people onto the air to say, oh, well, Johnson didn't really know about this. And then there was another denial and and sort of, so the lies sort of pile up and it all starts to fall apart. Now, this prompts various resignations. It prompts Sajid Javid's resignation and it prompts Rishi Sunak's resignation. I think it's fair to say, and it's one of the things that I say in the piece, that it's not entirely clear that... That these resignations are sort of directly prompted by the Pinter affair, in that it is such a scandal that they believe they can no longer continue. Um, it's pretty clear from Sunak's resignation letter, for instance, that his sort of, you know, he basically sees the Johnson administration as done and that he can't support the way that it's going economically. So he makes very clear in his resignation letter that basically him and uh, Sunak and the Prime Minister had this big economic uh, reset coming up. There's a big speech supposed to be delivered um, and that he was very clear that that the sort of spendy, um, you know, Johnson liked to refer to himself as a sort of Brexity Hezer, i.e. like Michael Heseltine in that he's kind of very different um, from various other Tories and enjoys social spending. Rishi Sunak clearly doesn't. He wanted to, you know, he made very clear in that resignation letter that it was all about austerity for him. And he thought that was very important. So in a sense, the, the pincher stuff is a very convenient thing to hang an attack on the government on, in that it doesn't bring or didn't bring, um, I think that's changing now in in the competition didn't bring some of the really deep ideological splits within the Conservative Party, um, front and centre. So the the resignations were done over what is everyone can agree that well, I mean, in this case, anyway, the Tory party can agree that sexual harassment um, is a bad thing. (laughs) And now they've decided and and that's so that's the thing that has spun out into these various, these various resignations. Now, I think everyone will be familiar with the drama. That ensued where Johnson was determined to hang on um, that has that is now done and I suppose the thing that's interesting about that is you know for an outside observer if you've been reading this through the press for the last few years you would have the impression that this man is a sort of electoral titan he's an electoral genius he is possessed of these sort of astonishing, you know, uncanny superpowers of channeling the desires, you know, whether conscious or, or somewhere lurking in the collective id uh, of the British people. Um, and now suddenly the Conservative party has decided to 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 unceremoniously defenestrate him. And that prompted that Daily Mail front page, which is an echo of um, when they removed Thatcher, it says, you know, what the hell have they done? I think two things that are important to, to get into the mix here is that, and, and we're seeing this now play out, there has never been a really clear Johnsonian hegemony within the party, right? That, that there's never been a kind of, you know, people were allied to him purely out of um, sort of instrumental uh, concerns. And, you know, insofar as you can talk of him having an ideology that doesn't appear to be any kind of clear successor to that. And the other thing here is that, you know, a lot of people in the Conservative Party think in the same way that someone like Dominic Cummings did, that this guy's manifestly unsuited to this job. He was there to do a task. The task is now, to all uh, intents and purposes, done. That task was Brexit, and now they want to get on and
0: install someone who is much closer and perhaps much more reliable. Okay, so let's talk talk now about the people who are competing to to take that job. I mean, it's the you know, you've got eleven people who've who put themselves forward so far. A lot of them won't get the twenty MPs that they need to to make it through after tonight they've all made varying degrees of slickness videos for their candidacy and they largely seem to be offering varying degrees of a fairly toxic mix of of tax cuts and transphobia um so where are they the ideological divisions in the party that you said are are coming to the fore now so um in a sense the the thing that's
1: that's really very clear is and it's it's striking, isn't it, that that those are the two things that are front and center in so many of these kind of election bids are culture wars and in particular, kind of extraordinarily transphobic positions. And I think that's most astonishing from someone like Sunak, who is supposedly a sort of relatively serious politician, has held one of the great offices of state, and it was the sort of opening lines in his bid. Um, in you know his 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 launch article in the in the mail in the Daily Mail was a sort of uh, kind of promises to to do something about gender ID in schools. So the ideological divisions here are you know one people have, have moved so there isn't a clear sort of successor candidate to Johnson. And I think that's that's actually really quite interesting, right? There isn't anyone trying to do that. and you know I mean if we if we step back here for a moment, we say, okay, this guy won an election at least in part because of the things that were being promised in that manifesto, which include sort of quite extensive promises on things like housing, as well as sort of, you know, some sort of redistributive promise going under the name of levelling up. Those are two quite significant things. Um, You know, the other tranche, of course, is getting Brexit done, which I think it's worth saying that, that, you know, he hasn't actually done. I mean, the Northern Irish issue is still there. Um, The trade issues are still there. Um, I don't think you can call Brexit done in in that sense. So the the divisions here are, you know, and I think this is perhaps visible. So someone like James Cleaverly, for instance, came out and, and this morning, dubbed Sunak, a Labour Chancellor. And so there's a kind of deep concern here, about spending about departure from what is essentially the sort of Ur Thatcherite norm for a lot of these people um and in a sense here i think you can th- i think you can think of this period of conservative rule as being entry into quite a sort of decadent you know period they've been in power for 12 years um that sense of being kind of uh, of having to sort of moderate what they believe and what they think you know in in terms of the wider electorate simply isn't there any longer and so you you know that whenever they lose a leader there's always a kind of instinct to return to to sort of uh, you know, this kind of conservative sort of Thatcherite norm. Um, and that's there in a lot of these things. So the divisions there are, are, are partly about kind of moving away from the sort of COVID period and the spending that's been involved in that. But I think more importantly, and I, it's unusual for me to think that these that kind of cultural issues are in some sense more deci- decisive than economic ones. But in this case, you know, that, well, The culture war issue (laughs) seems so front and central to so many of these candidates that I think you know we're obligated to take it seriously. You know, maybe that's partly a, a, a sense that there is no, again, no sort of internal hegemony within the the Conservative Party that there isn't actually a clear, agreed upon central ideology. So, so you end up in in these in these issues. The other side of this, I think, is to do with climate change. And one of the things that is, I think, quite important about the Johnson administration is that it hasn't been great on green issues, but it's been much,
0: much better than one might expect a conservative administration to be. Well, there's that story that um, just before COP26, Johnson was shown this, um, that Patrick Vallance gave him a presentation on climate change. And having been sort of part of the, as it were, Codswallop Brigade, he'd saw the graph and think, oh, wow, it really is anthropogenic. <laughs> and then there was um, the reason on Monday that that same briefing, an updated version of that briefing was, was shown presented to Parliament, and it was partly through the activism that this, this guy, and I don't remember his name, I'm sorry, Angus, he'd, he'd been on hunger strike for 37 days to get politicians to actually look at this stuff. And it happened on Monday, and because, partly I suppose, because everyone's so caught up in the, in the Tory leadership Um, business only 70 people turned up some of these um, of the Tory candidates are saying they're they're even incredibly modest ambition to get to net zero by 2050 they're going to cut that they're going to cut green fuels um, subsidies so I mean it looks as if even those very modest gains could be could be dulled back
1: yeah and I think I think that's actually really quite likely one of the difficulties here I think is that Inevitably, so uh, according to the rules, the the new rules that the new executive of nineteen twenty two has put together this um, the, the the kind of structure for this election, it means that we'll have a new prime minister around September September fifth, right? If everything goes to plan, which things often don't in British politics, but that looks quite likely. You have the increase in energy prices likely to hit in October, right? That's when the cap changes. That's when people start to really see things come through. It will be very, very tempting for any Conservative Prime Minister in that context to abandon any commitment to any kind of green issues. And I think this is a wider concern, right? I mean, it's not just, you know, it's not just a concern if you're the leader of a Conservative Party. I think even if you, let's imagine the government fell tomorrow, there were a general election, you have, you know, a Labour Party administration this particular Labour Party leadership um, would find it very difficult, I think, to to square, but I think any Labour Party leadership would to square the question of genuinely difficult energy bills with, you know, a commitment to green politics. And it's the it's the, the continual problem of green politics, which is that, you know, the timescales are such that there's always a more pressing concern somewhere on the nearer horizon. Um, and I think particularly when it comes to energy and particularly when we start to enter a very different kind of economic period, if the, if, you know, if, if these changes which are bedding in now, look like they're going to run for 2345 years, you're in a very, very different environment to what we had for the last decade when you had sort of zero interest rate policy and things like that. So so things start to look very, very different if you're, you know, if you're running a government. So, so that is to say that this is a concern for anyone, e- even if they're not a conservative, if you're a conservative, you're already probably quite suspicious of the Green Lobby, um, you're already quite suspicious. Um, you know of everything that goes along with green politics um, and it folds into a culture war. I mean that's the other thing about this kind of cultural politics is that it's very very hard to see it as not being um, played out along the dividing lines which already structure so much of British politics that on the one side there are the sort of woke green metropolitan you know blah 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 whatever on the other you have a you know everything that is is good and right and reactionary um you know, the I mean, I suppose the other thing, you know, just from my perspective here, that is important, is that I think it's important to take seriously those divisions. And I think it's not just a, a, a question that is relevant to thinking about what conservatives think, it's that the culture war entails the rolling back of real social victories, right? And this is, you know when you can't do anything economically that starts to look quite tempting right so you don't have any economic prestige anymore but so you come into games about symbolic prestige but the problem is symbolic prestige isn't just symbolic it entails the way in which you're treated at work the way in which you're treated um in the street the way in which you are you know able to express um or hide um you know who you are and so you know just from my perspective this stuff is is extremely important um it's also you know stepping back in the abstract i think quite interesting that The question of ideas and ideology has entered the 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 stage, you know, the political stage again, right? In that, you know, for many years, politics has been, in large measure, um, about economics you know, that was certainly true within the kind of post 2008 period, this question of, you know, what ideas are in charge and how they um, how they structure our politics suddenly is in the mix again. And it's in the mix in the United States, particularly with critical race theory over here, it's much more kind of focused around the question of gender and gender ideology. But but that stuff, it seems to be in the mix in the way that it hasn't been um, for some years. I, you know, I think that's interesting. And it's floating about
0: this competition. Yeah, some of the things that they're some of the candidates are saying are beginning to look like, you know, suggesting bringing back Section 28, which, like Roe v. Wade, you think that's a, that's a gain that's permanent. And that's even clear, I can't remember who it was, but there was one Tory MP who, when the Chris Pinscher scandal came out, asked if one, his accuser was gay, as if that would make any any difference. The kind of, oh, well, if you're gay, it's fine for you to be molested by, by men. Right, it was, one of, it was one of the people tasked with investigating it. But on the, on, on the climate question... That there is this idea, it's very hard with fuel prices, the massive fuel hike that's coming on top of those we've already had. That's coming in October. It's very hard to make the green argument. But isn't the reason a large reason for the for the increase in energy prices is because of the war in Ukraine and the, the price of Russian gas? And that, as people say, sunlight and wind have not got any more expensive. And actually, the green ta- without the green tariff, actually, energy bills would already be higher. So there, it seems to me there's quite a Straightforward. I mean, obviously, actually, it's more complicated and the transition takes time and, and, and all the rest of it. But if you're talking about presenting a, a political argument that everyone can understand, you say we can't rely on fossil fuels because we have to buy them from these warmongers who put the prices up and we're not allowed to buy them anymore. So the only way to bring energy bills down is to have a massive switch to, to renewable sources. And that doesn't seem like a difficult proposition to make
1: yeah you would you would think wouldn't you um, and yet uh so that so so there are two things there are two things here one is yeah, I think so that argument it's funny that that argument isn't made more often by people on the right of politics, and oddly, it's an argument that is sometimes made by people um like Michael gove, actually that there is a sort of security aspect um to this stuff that that is important. Depends on, on what way Gove is facing at any given time what he you know professes to believe, but that's, you know, he has been known to say things like that. And there is a there's a constituency for that on on the conservative right, but it's not it's not a substantial one. It's primarily a metropolitan kind of Cameronite constituency that takes those things seriously and that's not where the Tory Party is at the moment. It's a, it seems to me that it's a much easier argument for the Labour Party to make when the Labour Party gets around to making arguments again you know, the other thing here is that there is just simply a question of kind of class interest on this stuff, right in that petroleum donates to the Conservative Party. Um, Many, many people, Nadim Zahawi, for instance, who are involved in the top rungs of the Conservative Party have a very, very deep background in oil and petroleum products. And so there is, you know, I often am hesitant to Make a very clean read across between sort of personal interests and financial interests and the policies pursued in power. But in this case, it's you know, it's fairly obvious that um, one of the things holding back this stuff um, in the Conservative Party is uh, are simply those kind of financial links between conservatism and oil. Nonetheless, like it, it does seem to me that at some point over the course of you know the next year, there's going to have to be a serious kind of crunch point. Um, For people who are still attached to this belief, partly because um, it just makes you know, whoever does eventually win will be confronted with political realities, and they actually do have to deal with them. You can't actually put them off forever, although Boris Johnson has done that fairly successfully, or quite a few issues. Um, Yeah, um, and you know, and that's a that's a political problem. Yeah, I suppose one of the things that this does bring up is how far the Conservative Party in this period is talking to itself and talking to the sort of. 200,000 or so people who make up its membership, and how far the candidates, once they have won, can be expected to perform a kind of shift towards, if not the centre ground, then towards a kind of pragmatism.
0: Yeah, as we saw in the, the most recent Labour leadership, that Keir Starmer ran on a more left-wing programme than he appears to have pursued since becoming leader of the opposition. Yeah. So, I mean, I suppose that's the thing, all these things that you have to take. I mean, I was, <laughs> in the question of the tax cuts and the, and the culture wars, quite, yeah, who are they talking to? Are they talking to, I mean, presumably at the moment, today, they're talking to other MPs. They need to get those 20 MPs to get over the, the first line. But they're also talking to their party membership up to a point, I guess. They're talking to some of the newspapers. They were talking to the Mail, I guess, maybe to the Sun, the Telegraph, the Times. They want to get them on side. They're not really talking to the rest of us yet, are they?
1: No, and I think there's something kind of interesting and odd about this, right? That in the yeah you know, in the in the Conservative Party, these competitions are still a relatively new thing, right? I mean, it used to be that a leader emerged from a from a smoky room, and so internal elections are really the consequence of that. There's a there's a very interesting observation made by Richard Crossman. In his preface to Badgett's book on on the English Constitution, it's a very very interesting essay. It's sort of mid uh, mid nineteen sixties that edition, and he says, you know, one of the one of the effects of the Labour Party entering politics in the twentieth century and the sort of dem- democratic structure it brought with it is that it changed the shape of the party opposite. So the Tories' kind of gradual introduction of something resembling internal democracy, you know, it, you know, is a consequence of the greater democratization of British politics, and it presents some problems for them, right? That they have to have these conversations in public. And In a way that they have not done in the past. Um, And given technological change, um, (laughs) these questions are now conducted very much in public. So if you think even if this election were taking place, um, you know, 30, 40 years ago, um, I I am not entirely sure that we would have quite so um, strangely angled sort of presentation videos, right? Where, because the, you know, although we've both said that they're talking to themselves, nonetheless, these things are conducted in public, and they're aware that the public has, to some extent, an eye on them in the way that wasn't the case in the past. So This is one of the consequences of the internet on, on, you know, one of the effects of the internet on this stuff is that the way in which people undertake these campaigns is changing and has changed. And I think some of the things we're seeing in this, in this competition is a result of that, again, the effect of the internet on politics like this, you know, it's really in its very, very early years, we forget this because we're so used to it. But the way in which politics is changing as a result, um, it still looks quite new. So yes, whoever eventually wins, will need to mollify and unify the party to some extent, they'll bring some of the kind of people who are, you know, also rands into cabinet with them. Uh, Nonetheless, it's pretty clear to me that they are pitching here towards their core vote. And I think that's interesting, right? Because it tells us that all of these people have accepted that the people who might be kind of Lib Dem swing voters are probably going to go the other way in the next general election, right? There's nothing in any of these pitches that, that looks like it might be um, even acceptable to a kind of natural Liberal Democrat voter. Um, the other thing that I think is quite striking is that that, as you say, there's a kind of court politics going on here. Right, so it's it's in that kind of ambit between number ten, um, between Westminster, the Spectator Garden Party, and various bits of the press that there is this kind of internal conversation going on, and public opinion there takes on this sort of rather simulacrum. Like quality and things that people believe about public opinion are not necessarily informed by where public opinion actually is right now. You know, there must be a conservative MP somewhere looking at the latest Savanta Comres poll, which gives uh, puts Labour, I think, twenty-something points ahead, and saying you know, perhaps we're getting something wrong here. Um, Perhaps we're talking about the wrong thing. But that hasn't made its way into into this kind of court conversation here. Um, And and so there's this kind of weird simulacrum of public opinion going on here. You know, one of the things I think that they could be doing quite well, and you know, I think one of the things that would be quite interesting, if, you know, one of the many black or Asian candidates succeeds in winning this internal election, is that you then have quite an interesting public conversation about race, equality, political representation going on in Britain, it's probably going to be quite a reactionary conversation. Certainly some of the candidates, someone like Badenoch, for instance, is going very, very hard on, you know, endorsing a sort of, you know, the British Empire was good, um, you know, all these kind of standard cultural positions, but very, very happy to kind of mobilize our identity to do so, you know, young black women. And, you know, ironically, what you will see if someone like that wins, is the Conservative Party getting quite strongly behind them, you know, in a way that is not always the case in in what we might think of as more naturally, the home of say, the Muslim vote or the black vote. Um, uh, you know, there's a there's a really interesting politics of race and identity going on here. Um, and it's something that I think is going to, you know, regard, you know, I, I think it's quite likely that, that a black or Asian candidate wins. And that conversation is going to be very, very, very interesting over the next couple of years.
0: This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading The London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below. I mean the other thing about everyone who's who's standing is they're all talking about how they're going to fix everything that's broken i mean as you you give this at the end of your of your piece i mean this is how it is on the on the blog is saying britain after 12 years of conservative government is run down stagnant expensive underpaid unequal corrupt socially fractured backward looking hungry and fearful and there's a sense in which these candidates all seem to gesture towards recognizing that because they're all talking about the way they're going to fix everything that's wrong inflation's running at over nine percent that there are queues of hours to get to a and e there aren't enough teachers there aren't enough nurses there aren't enough jobs there aren't enough houses the houses that there are are too expensive all these problems which almost everyone in britain experiences some or or all of and yet they're presenting it as kind of, I'm going to fix this, as if they weren't somehow responsible. And the, and the first time I was aware of this kind of politics is when but B- Silvio Berlusconi was Prime Minister of Italy. and it was like calling on his supporters to, you know, let's turn the oven piazza. That's all, everyone, we have to take to the streets to protest against this terrible stuff. And it's kind of, but <laughs> you're the government and you're this pose of being anti-establishment and anti-government while you're in government. And Johnson picked it up, Trump did it. Is that, Going to continue? Well, I think to some
1: extent it actually has to continue, doesn't it? Um, because so one of the reasons that this stuff this exists, and I think one of the reasons that this is powerful in British politics, is that it recognises that something is broken, um, but moves the kind of zone of responsibility outside of the hands of the, the the people in power. So Johnson was a sort of past master at this, you know, in some ways. then there's always. In some sense, it's kind of harder in British politics because there really is one locus of power, and this this is something that has you know only got worse, I think, over the course of the last uh, decade, decade and a half. Is that things are increasingly centralised in Westminster. It's therefore very hard, I think, sometimes, if you're prime minister, to say, ah, well, (laughs) um, you know, various elites have gotten in the way. Even harder now you're out of Europe because that used to be the go-to. Right, this is the. The thing that the classic Peter Mayer book, "Ruling the Void," says is that the, the you know the way in which kind of politicians behave in elections, you know, was always to kind of shift the kind of responsibility, you know, one place or another. The the, the dyad of kind of Westminster and um, European elections worked very well to, to shift responsibility one way or another. That trick is now unavailable to a large extent. I mean, there's still kind of the legacy of stuff. You'll notice, of course, Suella Braverman has come out with me, we need to leave the the ECHR and things like this. So I do think that's quite likely to continue. Um, I don't know whether there's a degree of kind of electoral, whether it stops working electorally after a while. I mean, I think we just don't know on that front. It it hasn't ceased to be kind of profitable, I think, for for the Conservative Party thus far. Um, At some point, yeah, at least within England, I think it has to be said. Um, you know, ag- again, this is a there's a question of, of sort of national division here, which we haven't touched on, but you know, it's an important part of the the legacy of the sort of Johnson administration is an even more divided UK, with the SNP, of course, looking for a court ruling on there on, on whether they can hold a, a unilateral referendum or not. I think the Supreme Court is going to run a mile from that, by the way. So yeah, I mean, it, this kind of politics clearly serve some kind of function it also clearly resonates with people and this is one of the questions that's been on my mind i think through you know throughout this period is that there's obviously a huge chunk of the electorate within britain i think myself included that recognizes there are many many fundamental things wrong and that they are fundamental things in the sense that they go beyond the stuff that is that has been touched by legislation in this parliament really and one of the things that clearly works for conservatives is to say that there is. You see this in, in, for instance, commentators like uh, Peter Hitchens. You know, it's a, a Dominic Cummings thing as well. In one sense, they neither would like me putting those two next to each other, but they have the same kind of uh, take on this stuff, which is, you know, that there is there is a blob um, of one kind or another. Um, for Cummings, it's it's largely the civil service. For 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 Hitchens, it's a sort of, you know, a Blairite gramscian cultural formation right which sort of remains in power permanently regardless of of whoever whoever is in office and that to one extent or to some extent whatever is done in power never touches that stuff so for for hitchens it's you know the the kind of equality or or, you know i don't know the metric system (laughs) or whatever for cummings it's it's kind of you know the incompetence of the civil service now all of that all of that is i think quite significant quite important um but what it says is there you know there is there is a you know, that there is a general sense, there is something that is generally shared between these commentators, I think is more widely shared among the British public, that that something to do with the way in which electoral politics works in this country means that when you pull the lever to, to have an effect, something somewhere in the mechanism is broken, right? That it is no longer the case that that there is a mapping of kind of political concerns onto you know, your individual political concerns on, onto formal politics. There is no longer, you know, the the the, the bodies that are supposed to, that were supposed to you know translate your concerns um into politics no longer function in that way. And you know, lots of this is is kind of quite predictable. You know, th- this is one of the things that that again I I I referenced that Peter Mayer book. You know, it's one of the things that he says about the Labour Party is that, you know, it has become increasingly hollowed out it no longer does the things that it and this is this is what happens in general to kind of social democratic parties in particular um but i think you know i think you can push that further and say that this is increasingly the case for political parties in general and that takes you back much further to someone like robert mitchell's who says the oligarchical cast of politics here means that you know elite institutions are increasingly concerned with their internal concerns and may occasionally sort of and make these gestures to, to politics more widely. So all of this is to say that there is something that is very clearly broken. Where Cummings, for instance, and people like that are wrong is that the problems that need to be solved are actually quite hard. You know, he thinks that it's you know once you recognise that there is a problem, um, then then you're well on your way to solving it. Actually, lots of the stuff that he did in power and that that now maintains you know his kind of concerns in his substack thing he thinks the great thing that he did is recognize where these problems were well everyone knows where these problems are the solutions however are the hard things and and you know they entail very difficult questions about you know what the state is for how large it should be what it gets to own how it should do things you know who gets to have money and who doesn't who should have things taken away from them all of these are very very hard questions i think for for conservative politicians in particular so yeah, I mean this is getting away I guess from your conversation your your question a bit which is whether there is a kind of Berlusconismo, you know which is going to endure within British politics. But I think that's the only way you can deal with those those matters um and and not kind of t- take responsibility for them to say that look you have elected me to this position but it turns out that there is a more permanent you know state form there is a more permanent invisible Uh, power, um, and I need your support, you know, I am your avatar in politics, you know, etc, etc. And, you know, you must identify personally with me in a way that is kind of in some sense sort of anti-political and quite strange. um, And in another
0: sense, kind of seems to be the only form that politics takes these days. But one of the bizarre things about that, I suppose it's bizarre. I mean, if there is, if the structures of power in Britain never change, one of the reasons for that. It's because you know we've had twenty Etonian prime ministers and it's kind of it's that sausage factory which cameron and and Johnson both came out of and Blair to a certain extent as well. I mean the fet is rather than eaten, but you know and Sunak coming out of Winchester same thing that you have the public schools and then they go to Oxford and then they well become lawyers these days or journalists more recently, and then they go into politics you know and, and sunak's best friend from school is the political edge of the spectator and and all those networks and you know and you you can begin to sound like a conspiracy theorist except it said it's not because it's all out there it's all completely in the open you know and i went to one of those schools as well and they and so those power structures which johnson and cameron are deeply embedded in and then another have friends who come and work in the city and and the ownership of property so that that there is this this elite yeah and it's perpetuated through generations and they own most things, and, and, and they have the loudest voices in the media. And that's where the power is. So it's slightly extraordinary that Johnson, who is, in many senses, sort of the pure avatar of this system, is able to present himself as some man of the people driving the bulldozer through it to get Brexit done for the sake of the put-upon masses, is extraordinary.
1: It is extraordinary. And, and what, is, what is perhaps doubly so is that, you know, that there's almost a sort of reverse quality to this when it comes to people who are not from that background within politics. I mean, look, you know, I don't hold a particular brief for Keir Starmer, but it, it is not the case that he is from that background. He is his absolute you know, look, he, he he you know, he is a story of social mobility. You know, I am <laughs> uh, I, I am ambivalent about social mobility in the form that it's often lauded in the UK. But look, there's a there's a very clear story here of someone who is outside the elite coming in and to my mind that that kind of changes your politics to some extent and the question of you know where where you you know where you um where your allegiances lay um but nonetheless that like this is a guy who's you know very clearly not from that background um who has very clearly made it Sure, through the sacrifice of parents, whatever, but you know, very much largely on his own. It's not as if he inherited a castle or a you know whatever the hell, whatever Johnson's patrimony was, you know, or someone like you know someone like Dominic Cummings, who's whose father-in-law you know owns a castle and you know bangs on about eugenics. You know this, you know, it's funny that that therefore you know Starmer is the person who is who is tarred with this sort of you know establishment brush. And I think one has to be very careful here because, you know, it's not the case that he doesn't have long-standing links to a form of sort of liberal establishment, a form of professional establishment. And in fact, you know, he was the director of public prosecution. He do not really get much more establishment than that. But nonetheless, the kind of social background is very, very different to someone like Johnson. Nonetheless, he clearly doesn't possess that sort of odd, you know, pseudo outsider-ish energy that someone like Berlusconi, someone like Trump, someone like Johnson does he isn't a kind of in you know he isn't a a sort of insurgent he isn't a sort of avatar for kind of discontentment and I think that you know I think that's genuinely interesting it's not it's not entirely clear why that's the case Um, and I think it's you know I think you get into the realms of sort of quite complex political psychology when you start to think okay well is the thing that unites someone like Johnson someone like Berlusconi someone like Trump that they have a kind of whether that's kind of explicitly capital or social capital or establishment position at their disposal and therefore have what now seems to be the only basis for sort of political latitude is that they are, you know, to some extent independent from, you know, an establishment that that would otherwise sort of, you know, uh, constrain them in one way or another. Right. And this is the case with Trump, Uh, I think very early on in in the Trump presidency where he says, in fact, when he's campaigning, he says, look, I have loads of money. I don't need donors. I'm not part of this, this system that other people, other people are. So whether it you know, whether that's the, the basis of that kind
0: of perverse, uh, perverse sort of identification, I don't know. As well as getting saying, I'm look, I made myself rich, I will make Italy rich. It's kind of skipping the part where he made himself rich by impoverishing Italy but <laughs> hey you got to get there one way or another right I mean
1: um, but you know so so, so there is that there is this kind of uh, but, but this is a, this is really concerning isn't it because this this tells us that the basic way that we are now approaching politics is that we have these kind of champions who exist as the, you know right so the the sort of you know the way in which instinctively we think about politics is no longer that there are these sort of democratic institutions through which we give legitimacy to our leaders um, and through which you know we we um you know through which we we actually have some say in what they do and those might be political parties they might be trade unions they might be something like that um in fact now politics is a concern between elites and we just sort of stack up behind whichever member of the elite we are a fan of. And, you know, we can say, you know, my elite has this much money and is, you know, wants to build a kind of insane sort of train under San Francisco or whatever, or sends rockets into space or, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so... so so this, this sense that one might actually be a participant within politics, I think is so, so, so diminished. And and it's, a, you know, I think, a, you know, this is all to say that, that this stuff is, you know, I don't think it's going away anytime soon at all. And the only way that it could go away is if we were to see a sort of greater sort of democratic engagement in politics, which the other part of this conversation is that that has been to some extent happening on the left of politics in particular, you know, where there have been these attempts to, to democratize the Labour Party, didn't work very well. And to some extent, there's been a kind of huge upsurge in, in the left in the United States. And then you have these kind of interesting movements in the global south, um, in Latin America in particular at the moment. I mean, Which is also to say there there is another part to the picture that isn't just a kind of inter-elite politics. There is this stuff going on elsewhere.
0: Um, and so I don't want to be too kind of gloomy about everything. <laughs> but and the other I mean you mentioned trade unions as a as a way of participating at it. And of course that Mick Lynch as a spokesman as the as the leader of, the, of of RMT recently has sort of appearing on TV and people being so surprised by him, as it were, but in a way that they shouldn't be. Because here is a working class voice, he, he is representing Labour. I mean, there's a sense in which the Labour and Conservative parties, once upon a time, were supposed to represent different classes, that Labour represented Labour, Conservative represented capital. And there's a sense in which elections were, were a form of non-violent class struggle. And that sense seems to have disappeared so completely that when you then have a union leader coming on and talking in very clear terms about the needs of, of the members of his union as workers. Everyone's kind of, oh, what a breath of fresh air, but, it's, but that ought to be, <laughs> I don't know. It's And, and, and the fact that the, the, the Labour front bench, the Labour leadership what isn't support, wasn't supporting the, strike, the strikers, and it was criticising its MPs who were joining picket lines, when it's if you're not supporting I mean, what is what is the Labour Party for if it's not representing the interests of, of workers?
1: It's it, it look, it's a good question, and this is one of the things that you know that that is important about the transformation of the Labour Party really over the course of you know the second half of well, basically after Thatcher until today. You know, again, it's it's a complicated thing, but it's really kind of post-Thatcher that it beds in, post Blair that it beds in. You know, it, it matters that the the trajectory to becoming a Labour MP is largely through. Well, actually, it's not even through law these days. It's through professional involvement in politics, and that means it's a very, very constrained, um, you know, constrained atmosphere. But you know, the thing I would say here is that that this is this is probably that there's a danger here in becoming sort of kind of too uh, expecting kind of trade union leaders to do the party's job for it. Right? Trade union leaders are powerful precisely because they represent one clear constituency. It doesn't matter to them whether whether the you know except in a very limited sense whether the press is on side it doesn't matter to them whether Keir Starmer likes them or not it doesn't really matter to them whether I don't know Kirsty Walk for instance thinks that they're bright and and wants them back on I think that's you know one of the important things about what looks like an an increase in industrial struggle is that it will increasingly decenter the, the question of how one appears in the press and this, these you know that you know it would decenter journalists basically from from the center of politics that would be a very good thing it should be said that like one of the reasons the Labour Party exists is the recognition that political action can't be carried out purely through economic means right one of the reasons that pe- that the, the Labour Party is formed is they recognise that to make political change work within a country like this one there needs to be something that that, that you know, unless you are going to have and my word, it would be wonderful. It would probably be quite stressful, but it would be great. A sort of enormous general strike and the government to collapse and there to exist a sort of council of of, of workers and the oppressed who, who decide to form a new constitution and a new state. That doesn't seem to me to be on the cards anytime soon. Um, You know, I, I would be very happy if it were to happen. In the meantime, however, it does seem therefore there needs to be a sort of political vehicle of some kind, the Labour Party. Is historically supposed to be that vehicle. One of the questions the party needs to ask itself, it seems to me, is is you know why it has come to to be the way that it is. You know whether the objective conditions have changed in the sort of century or so since it since it first made its incursion into parliament. What it looks like to be doing that the kind of work that it's supposed to be doing today. That is all at one remove, I think, from 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 this this question. Now, it doesn't seem to me in the near future that you're going to get any of that. In the near future, what you're going to get is a Labour Party running around like a headless chicken while um, industrial struggle probably kicks into a higher gear. I mean, you have the kind of teacher's ballot and you know very likely kind of uh teachers strike you have I mean, obviously kind of transportation is going to be a huge 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 issue um obviously the question you know the, the the industrial strategy within unite in particular is quite important right now and there seems to be again another sort of wave of strikes coming from various industries that unionize to unite all of this is saying that the, this moment is actually quite unfamiliar in terms of the makeup of politics in Britain it hasn't been this way for quite some time um i think the danger in some ways is to kind of fall back into thinking oh well this is like the 1970s or this is like the 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 19 yeah 1930s i guess i i do think it's different i do think the context has changed and i do think that you know one of the questions the labor party you know has to ask itself <laughs> is whether it's just adequate to respond to to the this this moment and at the moment it it sort of seems to be trapped in this question of you know you know, trapped in this belief that, that, that kind of Labour politicians get into every so often, which is to believe that the source of motion within British politics is the Conservative Party, right? And that your job as the Labour Party is to respond to whatever the Conservative Party does, and to succeed as the Labour Party is not to get trapped by the Conservative Party. Now, of course, to, to some extent, that's true. That's a, that's a fairly accurate observation that the Conservative Party is in power, has many sources of motion of its own, many sources of power of its own. Yeah, but it doesn't seem to me to be adequate simply to respond, um,
0: you know, or, or not even to respond simply to, to sort of fail to get trapped by them. So if we look ahead to a putative general election 2024, say Rishi Sunak is prime minister, he can't hold together Johnson's coalition of so called red wall seats and traditional Tory seats in the rural seats. And we have a hung parliament and Labour and the SNP and the Liberal Democrats and one or two Greens are able to form a coalition and the SNP's conditions are another referendum and the Lib-, Lib Dems demand PR. And you see, I mean, is there I mean, a possibility for change coming through a situation like that, where you then do have some kind of constitution, positive constitutional change? The answer is probably yes, it's certainly a possibility. Um, in, and
1: the problem for it, the problem with it will be that it will take an entire parliament to do, right? And the thing that will be very tempting for the Labour Party is to say, OK, we'll put this in, but it'll be the end of the Parliament. And the problem is is that, that the entire Parliament will be gummed up with dealing with this kind of massive constitutional change. Um, one of the things we know is that constitutional change is quite hard to do piecemeal. Blair never successfully reformed the Lords. you know it never got quite you know, it was a fudge in the end. Um, something like the fixed term Parliament's Act and the various nightmares that it produced tells you something about how difficult it is to do constitutional change quite substantially. And the other problem here is just that the question of constitutional reform, although we've seen evidence I think in the past few weeks, about how urgently it's needed. And look, there is a big democratic question here about um, the legitimacy of a prime minister who is elected from within the ranks of the Conservative Party. And I do think that is a significant question. So just to say, you know, one of the big questions over the the, the past couple of weeks, has been Johnson talking about a personal mandate, which as we've been talking about is a thing within the way in which people think about politics, but it's not something that is rec- recognized at all within the structure of British politics at all, right? So so you have constitutional scholars saying, well, this is a nonsense because uh, a prime minister's mandate comes from commanding the confidence of the House of Commons. That's true. But often voters don't think like that. They think of in terms of the leader of the party that they voted for, and so we have this kind of mismatch between the way in which people think about politics and the way that the structure of politics, you know, formally exists. Um, the problem here is that there's there's a kind of you know third term or a third part of this which is which doesn't exist, which is a kind of coherent constitutional movement within the within well within England in particular. question is a bit different in Scotland, question is a bit different in Wales. But the movement for kind of constitutional change and think particularly on the left, you know, has been the preserve of kind of, you know, a fairly fringe uh, number of people among whom I include myself, You know, it looks to me, like, uh, you have a Labour administration, if it comes in, needs constitutional reform, like a hole in the head, that's partly because it holds these kind of delusions about what it can do when it commands the entire power of the British state from Westminster, um, never seems to actually translate. But you know, they will end up in these kind of wrangles. Um, I I think it's, you know, quite possible that you end up with a kind of, you know, another referendum on something like proportional representation by the end of, of that parliament. So really, I think probably next general election, you're looking very late 24, maybe even January 25. I think that's the latest it can be. You then are probably looking like 20... 29 2030 by the time that that goes to to a referendum because it really will need to i mean the lib dems would want it done without kind of popular consultation but it just won't happen so yeah it's it's possible it's on the cards the problem is it will take up an entire parliament uh, and it's an entire parliament when there are many 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 other issues <laughs> pressing um and so you know unfortunately it's the it's you know it's the ugly stepsister of politics but for me you know one of the arguments i think that needs to be made here and it's the argument that if we end up in this situation that I will put a lot of energy into making is that constitutional politics, you know, underlie all of this stuff, right? That it's about the decisions that we make together about the way in which we run a state. This stuff is important. And one of the problems of British politics is that it hasn't grown up and taken seriously the fact that it's a democratic polity and that because it's a democratic polity, it needs that kind of shared agreement about how things are run. You know, it's going to make, I think it's an unpopular argument to make People on the left see it as kind of remote and abstract. Um people on the right see it as taking away their power. Um, nonetheless, it seems to me to be you know fundamental, and I don't think I don't think we get through the problems that we have in front of us without taking issues of the Constitution fairly seriously. Again, not alone cannot be done alone. And I think if you're facing crises and particularly kind of ecological crises and crises which require you to reorder the way in which you do economics, then you can make constitutional reform part of that to say, you know, look, these, these crises are so huge, we need to think seriously about the way in which we make decisions in order to bring everyone along with us so we don't end up in a situation where you have, I don't know, people completely excluded from this process and, and
0: the, the inevitable social unrest that follows. And meanwhile, we, we sit back and watch as the Conservative Party chooses our next Prime Minister. James <laughs> Butler, thank you very much. Thank you. You'll be able to read James Butler's piece and the issue of the LRB that's out this week, along with Barbara Newman on Sanctuary in the Middle Ages and responses by 30 contributors to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Those are online now. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes. The music is by Kieran Brunt.